Welcome to Supply Chain Radio. I'm Greg Kiefer, and today I'm on stage at the Bridges Conference in New York City with Michael Kabori from Levi's. Michael, welcome to the show. Thanks a lot, Greg. So this is kind of weird because normally I do the show in a, like a darkened studio, and here we are in front of 500 people in a convention center. It's amazing. It's kind of different. So I thought no one's going to believe me unless we get everybody to prove it. So could we get a big round of applause, please, to let everyone know that this okay. is live? Oh, we're live. Yeah. All right. All right. All right, there we go. So that proves it. You know, I, I want to say, like, New York, it's Saturday night. Yeah, you know? we should have done that. Okay. You're right. Sorry. <laughs> but it's really, it's really Monday night, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I want to start here. I mean, you know, clearly, you know, it was funny. I was talking to somebody earlier, and, you know, sustainability has been a topic in supply chain circles for a long time. Yeah. But it seems to me that it was always a CEO objective, right? And, and this is a, a piece of research I found on, online, you know. And maybe you could talk a little bit about how your CEO sees this as part of the company and how you've kind of taken that and run with it for the past several years. Sure. So our CEO is Chip Berg. Actually, this September, he'll have been in place for five years, and he's really transforming the company. I mean, he came from P&G. He came into Levi's and set about transforming us, really just shifting the whole business culture, improving accountability, and so forth. And it's working. Isn't that great to say, like, when a CEO comes in and tries a transformation to say five years later that it's actually working, we're growing top and bottom line every year for the past three years, which hasn't been done in 20 years before that? Like, it's fantastic to be able to say his plan is working. And it's working because, obviously, he's bringing a lot to it, um, changed a lot of the leadership and brought in new folks. Um, and he's made sustainability one of the pillars of this shift and one of the reasons is, particularly now, now that we prove that we can grow, top and bottom line, he's really thinking about how do we grow even faster. And for that, we've got to look into the future and look at the consumer of the future. And the consumer of the future is obviously a millennial. You've all heard about this. You're all looking at this, right? We're all looking at it. They care about these issues. And so sustainability becomes more than just compliance. It becomes a competitive advantage for certainly a global branded company like ours. Right, and I mean, that's a good segue into kind of our next topic. If you had to look at all the issues, I mean, you touched on a couple in your presentation, but what would be the, some of the top issues that the companies are facing today versus maybe five, eight years ago? I think, you know, the issues continue to evolve, and I would say 10 years ago, we were all focused on compliance. You know, make sure there isn't that blue water coming out of your laundry facility in China. Make sure that your workers are being treated properly or that some companies are still involved in compliance in terms of building and structural integrity. Make sure you're not in one of those building collapses like I talked about. But today, companies are really moving beyond that compliance mentality, trying to get different value out of the sustainability programs, whether that's, like I mentioned, reducing your costs through using less water to manufacture, which actually does have a cost benefit, to thinking about how sustainability contributes to growth, how you reposition some of your products to appeal to those millennial consumers. And also, what we don't really talk about is, you know, sustainability and using fewer resources to make your product or to provide your service. It's not only more efficient, but it puts that constraint on your innovation, your R&D. And so we partner really closely with our innovation team and our R&D team. And having those constraints, like one of the things we do is, say, make the product with less water. It 
forces you to look at different ways to finish the product, to get your fabric done with a lot less water. Chemicals is another one. Reducing our dependence on chemicals that might be harmful is another constraint. Right. So designers can't just put on any chemical, it's chemicals that are more safe for the environment. That's a constraint, but it really forces them to innovate differently. Right, how do you drive that kind of DNA to a big company like Levi's? I mean, I gotta believe it hits all facets of the company. I mean, is it cultural, like what's the approach there? I mean, you know, our purpose, as we say, is profits through principles. And throughout our history, partly because I think we've been family owned and we still are family owned, the family plays a really important role in how we've approached these different issues over really the history of the company. And so the descendants of Levi Strauss basically still own the company, they're the shareholders. And so they've really inculcated that into the culture of the company. And because of that, we tend to attract people, including our CEO, who believe in this, who believe in doing the right thing and believe that it pays back for right, the business. Right. So, Obviously, we're sitting here in a room full of supply chain people, so I thought maybe we'd drill down and kind of yeah, you make sustainability and attach it to supply chain. So you mentioned cotton, but from a supply chain perspective, you know, where's your center of focus today and why? We focused for many years on our first year vendors with the compliance programs and so forth. Now, as you see through that worker well-being program, we're trying to go to that next level. And the next level, at first the suppliers were a little resistant. They were, why are we doing this? But some of them actually do that. They invest in their workforce because they know it pays back. And as we've rolled this program out, I mean, now it's in 29 of our biggest vendors covering almost 100,000 of the workers that make the product. And the payback that they're seeing in terms of reduced absenteeism, reduced turnover, more productivity is literally four to one. Every dollar invested in the program by them creates a $4 return on that investment. So they're seeing that benefit. So that beyond compliance is paying off for them. I think the other big place that we're looking now is at the mill level. Remember I said that I thought our originally our biggest impact was at the manufacturing level? It really isn't. It's actually the bigger impact is at the mill level where the mills are spinning the cotton and weaving the fabric to make denim. The amount of water they use and the amount of water and chemicals and energy they use is literally double of what's happening at the laundry facilities where we do the finishing of the product. So we're really focused on the mills at this point. Right, right. So you've sort of got the, the, the factories done and you're onto the next tier, if you will. Correct. So this was one of, as again, putting my GT Nexus marketing hat on, this was yes. one of our great achievements uh, was you know, getting you featured in the Financial Times. And I guess I'm curious about you're promoting this, it's part of your brand. How did this work out for you? You know, being featured in a major global yes. pub like this about your story and what you're doing. I mean, tell me a little bit about that and how that played out on your end. So this program that you're referring to is the IFC's, International Finance Corporation's Global Trade Supplier Finance Program. That's kind of a mouthful. So I'll start with just the basics. Yeah. So. Everybody knows what the IFC is, International Finance Corporation? Most people? So the World Bank, you know what the World Bank is, right? The World Bank makes loans to governments for development purposes. The IFC is the private sector lending arm of the World Bank. So they make loans to corporations in developing countries, really for infrastructure and other development programs. And the IFC, they make loans, but they also have a short-term trade finance program. 
That's where GT Nexus comes in. Right. Right. So what they do is they, through this program, and I'm definitely not a finance guy, but through the program, they pay our vendors early <clears throat> on the invoices so the vendors don't have to wait around and have to deal with those cash flow issues. So what, when we talk to them, they propose this idea, well, why don't we lower, because vendors have to pay interest for these short-term trade financing. They said, if the vendors score better on sustainability, Levi's, then we can offer them a lower interest rate. And I said, are you serious? That is fantastic. Like all of these years, the only, the only way we can get vendors to comply with the basic labor and environmental standards is like threat of you know, beating them up, right? We'll pull your orders, we'll give you less orders, but we're giving them a financial incentive now. So through this IFC program, they score better on our sustainability programs and they get, literally, they get a lower interest rate on that short-term trade financing. And GT Nexus has been a terrific partner. We worked with you guys for nine years. This program just started a couple years ago, and you're also helping to get those better rates to the vendors. And now we've got 13 of our big vendors signed up for the program. Their, their compliance rates are up, their performance rates are up, they're paying less interest, they're saving money, and the IFC is talking to other brands about it. They've signed up Puma, and they've signed up Nike for this, and we're introducing them to other companies because it's a, it's a win for us and for the vendors. Right, so you're literally helping competitors in some respects you know, get onto the program. Well, it helps us too because in our sector, in the apparel sector, as probably most of you know, we share vendors. And so if we can help other vendors get to that improved level of performance on sustainability, that's great, because we can go in and, and work with them as well. Right, well, and you mentioned scorecards, which is a very powerful way to get players, right? I mean, you yeah. want to move up, right? And so it's, you know, putting a, a number by people really has helped, I imagine. Absolutely, you bet. Well, the other thing that, you know, that our sourcing people tell us is, now that there's money involved, like all the sustainability programs are not the sole province of the sustainability compliance person in the vendor. Like the vendor CFOs are now getting involved in the sustainability programs because there's money involved. Right, how are you rolling it out? Is the adoption, I mean, is it constrained by awareness? How do you get all of your suppliers to play? So the program works best obviously when money is expensive and interest rates are high. So we started it in South Asia and that's where the 13 vendors are today, but we've over the past few months been working on how do we expand it to the vendors in East Asia where they can usually get money, they can usually get the financing. But we work with you all as well as the IFC now to bring the cost of the program down where it's actually more competitive than what they can get on the commercial market. Right. So we're gonna roll it out now to East Asia and to the Americas. And what are the instruments that you use to make this happen? Is it purchase orders, invoices? What exactly are you guys it's using? It's the PO system. That we've, uh -huh. All the POs that we process through you guys. And so you're right in there helping us yeah. work this out and helping the IFC work it out. Right, yeah. right, right. Yeah, you're way ahead of a lot of people in this, in this area. So. so let's talk a little bit about multi-tier. I think one of the struggles that we've heard a lot over the years, or at least I've heard, is that you know, you've got your tier ones. You know, there's different yeah. terminology for suppliers in different industries. But oftentimes companies don't know what's happening below the suppliers they have relationships yes. with. As you mentioned cotton, mm -hmm. buttons, I'm assuming, you know, thread, I mean, all this different stuff. Right. How do you drive this so you've got that full, you know, so you're not attached to a, a factory of, that makes jeans buttons that collapses. You didn't know that one of your factories was using it. How do you deal with that? I think 
we have the good fortune of historically being a manufacturing company. We had 40 plants in the US at one time. So we have a lot more visibility to the mills and to what we call the sundry or the, you know, the small metal parts, the zippers, buttons, and other providers. So we have held those relationships. At some, at some stage, we were trying to get out of them because we didn't want to be so involved. But I'm really happy that we are still involved and have that visibility because it really helps us with those relationships. And frankly, your supply chain folks, you know, over the past few years, we've really been consolidating the size of our vendor base, right? It's just more efficient. And the other thing that's going on is those small, cheap vendors that we all used to use, they cannot meet these requirements anymore. They can't meet the sustainability requirements. They can't meet our requirements for flexibility. They can't meet our requirements for chemical management, all these other things that we're introducing to them. So we've gone to much fewer, bigger, more capable vendors, as I'm sure most of you have. Right, well, and I know when I did the research on your bio, and I think I mentioned it, that you were one of the first companies to kind of disclose who your suppliers were. A lot of companies would not do that. Why did you do that, and how did that work? I mean, we did it a few years ago, and one of the big risks that everybody thought was, oh my gosh, if the, if the vendors are out there, it's really competitive information. Well, in our sector, apparel and footwear, Everybody's sourcing in the same factories anyway, so it really doesn't matter. If you really want to find out, you can find out. There's so much movement of people in the industry as well. People who work for us used to be at Gap and so forth and so on. So there's really not much of a trade secret associated right. with that. The other big worry that people had was, oh, the activists and the unions are going to come in and try and organize the factory and make all kinds of trouble. And again, if somebody really wants to find out where you're sourcing, they can find out. And in the end, we disclosed and nothing happened. Yeah, well, I mean, I'd imagine something, maybe did you get a good brand, like a positive marketing pop by doing that? Well, the vendors liked it, right? Because they all want everybody to know that they were sourcing with Levi's. Right, right, okay, okay, cool. So, you know, I guess this is toward the end here, but you know, if you could give the room advice, I mean, I think a lot of companies, maybe not everybody here, but I think every company's got some sort of sustainability initiative. You know, we've heard it a couple of times today. What advice can you give the room for companies that feel like, gosh, we are nowhere close to where Levi's is, and what would you tell the group in terms of how to approach this over the next year, say? I guess probably three things I would say. One is, we all have compliance programs, right? Start thinking beyond compliance, right? Compliance is, okay, that's the basics now, but if you want the competitive advantage out of this, start thinking beyond compliance, number one. That's gonna generate some more competitive advantage for all of us. The second thing is if you really wanna build out a sustainability program, as, as you talk to people in the business, like everybody has a point of view on what to do about sustainability. Oh, let's go green this way. Let's use less paper. Let's do this. It's hard to determine what to focus on. And so I would say the, the biggest, most important thing is to get the data. Like we did this environmental life cycle assessment because one of my managers came to me and I'm a labor guy, right? I'm, I'm not an environmental guy. And my, one of my environmental experts came and said, Michael, we got to do this life cycle assessment on the product. And I said, what's that? And she told me what it was. And I said, that sounds like a good idea. So when we went out and did it, we learned that what I told you, our biggest impact isn't where we thought it was. 
And so we focused on the biggest impacts on cotton and consumers, and everybody could understand that and get behind that, including everybody from the CEO on down to you know, people on the shop floor. They got that, and it made sense to them once they saw the data. Right. And, and I would say the last thing is, don't hesitate to talk about the programs that you have. Talk to your employees first and get them engaged. And then before you talk to consumers, make sure you got it nailed down. You got all the data and you don't let, oh, I shouldn't say this to you, you don't let your marketing people oh, get a boy. hold of it, you know? Thank you. And just, and just tell these stories that aren't true. Like make sure you've got all of that integrity with the data as you go and talk to the consumer about it. No offense, man. I apologize for all my <laughs> colleagues at other companies, but I'm more ethical than that. Yeah. So let's, look, let's leap ahead 10 years. Yep. I mean, I can't help, when, you know, at least out in California where we're from, you know, every, every little restaurant is now sustainable food, organic. Mm -hmm. You yeah. know, what's it like? I mean, 10 years, let's leap ahead to the year, my gosh, what, 2026. I mean, what do you foresee? Where is it all headed? 2026? Yeah. Or 2025. Uh, nice yeah, yeah, 2025. I would say that what I was talking about, that circular economy, that is going to be the way that many of us are doing business. A lot of us are doing business. The successful companies will have that built in. They'll figure out how to eliminate that waste and how to reuse all of their materials. Like that is going to be key to just your economic survival, I think, number one. I think number two, those programs, particularly for the workers that help to improve their well-being, are going to be super critical because we see it every day in the news. The inequality that's happening in this world, whether it's in our country or other countries, it's getting worse. And unless we can do something for the workers, those people at the bottom of the pyramid that are making our products or helping us at that level, there's going to be a huge problem in 10 years. Like what we're seeing today is going to seem like child's play compared to what's going to happen in 10 years. That's going to be the thing that really makes the whole global economic system unstable and potentially topples it, is that unrest on the part of workers and labor and people who are just at the bottom, who, who are suffering from that inequality. So those are some of the things that really make a lot of sense for us to focus on these issues now. Right, well, it seems like such a top of mind issue. So many companies are embracing it. You heard Whole Foods this morning. Mm -hmm. Maybe the lights are beginning to go off, so there's hope. All right. Well, Michael, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Thanks for thank joining you. us on the show. It's been a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah.